0: Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is an old and dear friend. We recently reconnected after about a 10-year hiatus, um, talking about Kami Dunaway. Uh, so welcome, Kami.
1: Thank you, Matt. Excited to reconnect.
0: And we met uh, way back when, during Yahoo's Halcyon Days, when you were their global chief marketing officer and we're gonna talk about your journey. I wanna go back to Frito-Lay, and we're gonna talk about what you're doing now, of course, at Duolingo. But I wanna start with uh, your relatively new home. You've been there about three years, and I know you've become a very strong, passionate, engaged, involved, leader of the community in Pittsburgh. And so I'd love to talk about your recent passion for your city. I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time in Pittsburgh. I think it's one of the great underrated jewels of America. So I'd love to start in your relatively new hometown and get your sense as to why you love it so much and what is happening in Pittsburgh as part of its sort of post-COVID comeback?
1: So I moved to Pittsburgh three years ago when I took the job at Duolingo, and I didn't know much about Pittsburgh. And as you said, I have really come to love it. It has a fantastic art scene. It's a very affordable city, so it's a place that attracts a lot of musicians and visual artists. It has a really good... Craft beer and food scene. There are 90 distinctive neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, each that have their own stories, their own staircases, their own bridges. Um, so it's a really been a fun place to discover. And as you said, I developed such a passion and interest that I agreed to go on the travel and tourism board because I really want people to have the opportunity to understand that Pittsburgh has a very proud um, steel history and great sports teams, but it has a lot more than that. Um, Parks and restaurants and businesses. Uh, Duolingo made Pittsburgh uh, the home of the company because our two founders met at Carnegie Mellon University. And so we're really proud to be part of a pretty vibrant technology community here as well. One of the things that we did a few years ago is to put up billboards in New York and Silicon Valley that said, work in tech, buy a home, move to Pittsburgh, because it is a really affordable place to live as well as a great place to visit. Yeah. And when you're
0: in these meetings with the city business civic community, the folks that are paving the way forward, travel and tourism businesses have largely ground to a halt. What are they saying in terms of this is what our plan is or this is why we're optimistic? And what's sort of the finger on the pulse in a city? It's not really America's heartland, but, you know, one of the great cities Of our country.
1: So, one of the things was working very closely with the community to make sure that there was good safety protocol in all of the restaurants and hotels and event arenas and communicating that message out to the public. And we're starting to see some great sporting events come back. We're starting to see a lot of drive uh, time vacationers visiting. So just getting the word out that Pittsburgh is open for business and a great place as we all start re-emerging from the, uh, the past year.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because you know, one of the benefits of what we get to do is we get to travel. And you know, Europeans in particular, they know New York, they know LA, they know a few other places, they know San Francisco. There were so many other wonderful cities in our country that never register in the same way or certainly not as resonant or as prominent. New Orleans, like no one ever raises New Orleans. And I think that's one of the great jewels of America as well. Pittsburgh, I must tell you, I went there a couple of years ago. I think I we shared this when we caught up last week, when the Stones toured, we went and saw them at Heinz Field. And I did a trip with my son and my nephews. And what a beautiful, beautiful city. And you can really see how it's evolved from old steel and manufacturing and embrace technology and healthcare, and has really reinvented itself.
1: And when you come from the airport, you go through a tunnel, and you emerge on the other side, and you see the beautiful three rivers coming together. You see the Steelers Stadium, the Pirates Stadium, a gorgeous skyline. Um, it's really one of the only cities in the world that has that kind of an entryway. And I would challenge anybody to come and not have their breath taken. Away.
0: And I will credit uh, Tim McCarver, the great uh, baseball player and announcer because I learned it from him and it always stuck with me. But I am one of not too many people outside Pittsburgh who uh, knows the confluence of the three rivers and can name the Ohio, the Allegheny and the one that everybody misses. The Monica Helan. Exactly, exactly. That's the one everyone misses. Okay, so on from Pittsburgh. You have an incredible uh, education, University of Richmond, Harvard for graduate degree, and uh, starting, it looks like, Cami, unless I missed it, first job at Frito Lay.
1: So actually, my first job was with the Martin Agency. In Richmond, Virginia, out of University of Richmond. I started as an account executive at a wonderful agency and then went to an agency in Raleigh, North Carolina, before I went to business school. And then Frito-Lay was my first job out of business school. But from the very beginning, was blessed to start in a place that really understood the power of consumer insights and creating breakthrough creative.
0: So was was Mike
1: Hughes at the Martin agency back then? Absolutely. Mike Hughes. um, Yeah. Great DNA there.
0: Tremendous. Uh, Mike was a very close friend of ours. And I think right before he passed a few years ago, his last public appearance was with us at advertising week in New York. And by then he was fairly ill. Um, And uh, through Rick Boyko and Mike, we got very involved in the VCU Brand Center down there in Richmond.
1: That's right. He had an impact on so many people. And those were fun days back in, this was the uh, mid 80s and uh, yeah, great work, but also just great times that folks had together in the agency there.
0: Another great city and certainly a great age. And who was it at Raleigh? Was that McKinney or somebody else?
1: No, it was an agency called Howard Merrill and Partners.
0: Great. And then you went to grad school.
1: Then I went to grad school.
0: Okay. So I think we'll get the rest pretty right. And then Frito-Lay.
1: Exactly. I, I um, have always loved chips. And I had this uh, belief that I would be best working in a company that I could explain to my grandmother. So consumer packaged goods really appealed to me. And to be able to work on brands like Doritos and Cheetos and Sun chips, was was really appealing,
0: and you rose to be their chief customer officer. But you were there thirteen years, so you must have had a lot of different positions there.
1: Yeah, I think that one of the things that was was wonderful about Frito-Lay and PepsiCo is that you had a chance to learn from a lot of really really talented people, and you had the chance to move around in different roles. So I started in marketing, I moved out into sales, I. Um, As you said, was chief customer officer for a bit. And then uh, at the time, my last job there was heading up kids and teens brands. So never had the chance to get bored for sure. And was they based, was that in Texas? I started in Texas and then I was in Princeton, New Jersey, then Portland, Oregon, then back in Texas.
0: And how difficult was that to you? You were relatively young when you started to be moving around geographically. Did you embrace that? Were you
1: intimidated by it? I embraced it at the time. I saw it as a chance to have an adventure, to expand my skills, to interact with new people. Um, And also at that point in my life, didn't have children. So it was, uh, yeah, it was really a lot of fun. And I think a chance to stretch myself and grow.
0: Great. And any particular campaigns or any memories from your tenure of Frito-Lay, maybe something that was a big hit or maybe something,
1: Cammie, that was a miss? Yeah, so one of uh, my favorite memories was in, um, when I was the brand manager on Rolled Gold pretzels. And we discovered that if we just took one little fat gram out of Roll Gold, we could make it fat-free. And this was a time where fat-free foods were really on the rise. And so we came out with Rolled Gold Fat-Free Pretzels. And then we did a great campaign with the Rolled Gold Pretzel Boy our favorite uh, George Costanza at the time, uh, Jason Alexander. And I loved when I saw him on the Tide commercial at the, uh, the Super Bowl this year, because I remember doing these great rolled gold commercials with him. And he was such an intelligent, um, just committed actor, but he just lit the camera on fire. And our business, we grew so much market share during those times so that's something that i uh, that i think about with a lot of fondness well look who's here the gym class joke that was before fat free Rolled gold pretzels prove it pretzel boy
0: oh, must be the pretzels Great taste that's fat-free. Must be the petals. It must be rolled gold. And I'd imagine, as you rose through the ranks there, that you were dealing with and managing a lot of outside agency resources, creative media, and otherwise. Talk about that—that that part of your learning curve.
1: Yeah, did a lot of great work with BBDO particularly also um, had the chance to work with Alan Podhash, who was at Pepsi at the time and Pepsi was the parent company of um, Frito-Lay. And I remember there was a meeting fairly early on in my tenure when I was sitting in this huge mahogany panel conference room and there was Alan Podhash on one side of the table and there was Roger Enrico who was the president of Frito-Lay at the time and just a, a guru at marketing and brand. And I felt like I had arrived to be able to sit at a table with these great marketing creative minds and just absorb what they had to say. And um, I remember one meeting where I was working on a potato chip brand and I'd done lots of research and been out in the market and had this big fat presentation about how Lay's potato chips could be more effective in competing with regional brands. And Roger Enrico listened very, very patiently to all of my analysis. And he said, um, "Cammy, have you ever compared the back of a Lay's bag with the back of an old Dutch bag, which was one of our really um, strong regional competitors out of Minneapolis. And I embarrassingly you know, admitted that I hadn't done that. And he said, well, if you look at that, you would see that um, we don't have MSG and they do. And maybe rather than all of those reams of analysis that you did, that one little fact, could be the insight that we could really build our marketing efforts around and it was just such a lesson for me and not getting lost in all of the data and just looking for that differentiator that you could really communicate in a compelling way to consumers so i'm so glad that i had the chance to learn under people like that
0: fantastic so we mentioned mike Hughes earlier and you just mentioned alan Podash as well and one of the things that I love to dive into on Great Minds is there are certain names that we don't want to get lost in history. Um, Alan's name I have not heard in years. In fact, I think we're going to have Alan Rosenshine from BBDO on Great Minds later this year, uh, another iconic name. And I think they both worked together quite closely for many years on Pepsi. Talk a little about Alan and what, what a giant he was.
1: Yeah he was had this uncanny ability to both look at a storyboard and really understand whether it was something that was going to break through and connect emotionally as well as you know looking at a rough cut and just tweaking things the littlest bit that made the biggest difference. So I think one of the things that I learned from him is that that last 5% of effort can make all the difference in whether or not you have a piece of creative that rises above the rest or whether it's you know just something that gets lost in the noise.
0: Great story. So you're there 13 years, it's a long time if you're betting. You say, okay, she's going to be here, maybe her whole career. And all of a sudden you get a phone call or an email. I'd love to hear the story of when you first got outreach from Yahoo, which is where we met.
1: So my last job at Frito-Lay, as I mentioned, was running kids and teens brands. And I was responsible for Doritos It actually built out the first Doritos website and shifted a lot of money out of television on Doritos to online, because I knew that's where our target audience was. That's where the young people were going. And through that, I caught the eye of the IAB, and the IAB did an advertising campaign featuring a couple of um, marketers who were really embracing digital and I think that caught the attention of Yahoo. And so when I um, realized that this was an opportunity to take all the great learnings that you get in a consumer packaged goods role, but fully jump in to what was going on with the digital transformation of how brands could connect to consumers, it was a little scary. But I just knew it was the right thing to do. Fantastic.
0: And you were hired by, was it, was it Jerry? Was it Terry? Who was running the company then?
1: It, Terry was running the company, and I interviewed with Terry, Jerry, and Dan Rosenswag. So again, great names in the business. One of the things that stood out to me in that process was in the final set of interviews where I was really trying to decide, is this a move I want to make? I've been at PepsiCo 13 years. I love it. There's plenty of opportunity there. Am I ready to make a jump? And I asked Terry, what were the characteristics that he was looking for in the executives that he was bringing in to Yahoo? And he said, with that amazing humility that Terry had, um, I want people who are smart because I certainly don't know everything there is to know about this new digital space, but I also want people who are kind because I just don't think we have room for egos. We just need to all work together to continue to make this a great company. And that blew my mind to have this CEO, this incredible entertainment executive say that he was looking for people who are kind. So he hooked me right there and I never looked back.
0: Fantastic. And Terry, we're talking, of course, about Terry Semel, who co-ran Warner for many, many years and a legendary career in Hollywood. And Dan Rosenzweig, who's still around. We still speak to Dan from time to time. Terrific guy. And Jerry Yang, of course, the co-founder. Kemi, what was it we always run into people who worked at Yahoo in that time period? And uh, I've called it the greatest farm system for talent that our industry has seen in the last 20 years. Others have agreed. Others may disagree, but many agree. What was it about that culture that produced so many talented people? And while the brand sort of, I think, missed its window in many ways, um, and I know now uh, post-sale uh, from Verizon Media to Apollo, I think they're gonna bring the Yahoo name back more prominently. But what was it about that culture and that time period that created such a fraternity or sorority of talented
1: people? I think it was a common belief that digital could absolutely change people's lives and that Yahoo was at the front of that. I remember one of the campaigns that we did fairly early on in my time there, we talked about... Yahoo being a life engine. So much more than just a search engine, whether it was managing your fantasy team and Yahoo Sports, whether it was using Yahoo News to stay on top of what was going on in the world, using all the great communication tools, Yahoo Groups, Yahoo Mail, um, Yahoo really helped to enrich people's lives. I particularly remember in our 10 year anniversary celebration that we brought a number of of Yahoo users there to Sunnyvale and just hearing their stories. It felt like something really special. It felt like we were able to give people tools and community connections that really made a difference. And I believe that fueled us all.
0: It was an incredible run. And Yahoo also had something that as a marketer, which you understand far better than I, but they had a real halo over their brand. And, you know, there were certain brands, you know, people liked Yahoo and it sort of doesn't matter, you know, no matter what AT&T spends, and it's certainly a great company, but people don't love, you know, uh, uh, you know, they don't have that halo. In the same way you know apple i think has a halo nike you could argue has a halo yahoo different than anyone else in that space different than aol different than any of the other players that appeared or disappeared you know many brands of that era the technology come did not make it you know things like alta vista and and so many others that disappeared but they sort of had and i would say squandered uh, a tremendous brand halo
1: yeah there was a humanity there um, you know, and starting back with the Yahoo Yodel. And I think we were also smart enough to not move away from that equity. And I know when you and I were there, we actually leaned into that equity and did more with the yodel and had new kinds of people yodeling. And I think that just represented Yahoo's heart in a way that was pretty powerful. Very, very special. And
0: uh, also lost in history and arguably the worst Business decision in American history was when Yahoo could have bought Google for a song and passed,
1: and came close on Facebook too. I, I remember a conversation about uh, the fact that we that uh, the executive team was talking to this young guy who had this company called Facebook and seemed kind of interesting. And
0: <laughs> oops. Okay. So you then move on after an incredibly successful four-year run at Yahoo and take a top job at another company that was white hot at that time as EVP of sales and marketing at Nintendo. How did that happen?
1: So that came through an executive recruiter and I, I wasn't looking. I did have, I have a son and he was seven at the time and was a huge fan of Pokemon. So a little bit hard to pass up the opportunity to go work for a company like Nintendo. And at the time, they were really looking to expand beyond the sort of red ocean of gamers and companies that were competing on better graphics and more buttons. And so they had just launched the Wii and really believed that gaming could be something that was enjoyed by everyone, regardless of their age. So it was um, a great honor to be part of trying to get that message out to people and and growing the penetration of the Wii as well as the Nintendo DS. And
0: and it seems like going back to your tenure at Frito-Lay and then things that you did both at Nintendo and afterwards that you developed a real almost subspecialty in marketing to younger people. Where do you think that came from?
1: You know, I think that it's um, it's just a good way to stay fresh as a marketer, to always have an eye for what the new trends are, what younger people are thinking about and caring about. Um, so you're right. I hadn't thought about that, but that has been a trend. I do like brands that resonate well with with young people. And it was fun for me recently. uh, My son now, who was uh, seven at the time I went to Nintendo, was in college now. And after I joined Duolingo, we did some marketing activity highlighting our mascot duo. And we did a video um, that became very, very viral. And my son was like, mom, you're doing cool stuff again. So that's always been a North star that I've tried to navigate by is, does my son think that I'm working on interesting brands?
0: Right. Well, at seven, having a mom who worked at Nintendo at the time the Wii came out, I don't know that it gets much cooler than that.
1: I will have to say there were some crocodile tears when I decided to leave.
0: <laughs> oh boy. And any particular, that was such a celebrity pop culture You know, centric, iconic brand, uh, referring to both Nintendo and the Wii. Any particular campaigns or things that happened along that journey that give you a smile?
1: I was really um, happy to do a campaign that helped women and actually women, say, you know, 13 to 35 embrace handheld gaming. And this was before. Farmville and all the you know mobile mobile games and we just wanted women to see themselves as enjoying gaming. So we did spots with Beyonce, with Carrie Underwood, with America Ferrara just using celebrities to break down any um, concerns that women had that maybe gaming wasn't for them and vastly improved the penetration of Nintendo products among females, which I was very proud of. Fantastic. And you've also uh,
0: served on a number, and still serve, on a number of corporate boards, Nordstrom and Red Robin and Marketo and I think Planet Fitness. Talk about your experience contributing to the success of other companies as a board member.
1: It's great fun to be able to think about a variety of industries and to think about the trends going on uh, that are impacting the food choices that people make or how they want to spend their time exercising. So I, I like it's always about starting with the consumer. But I think it's, it's great to be able to think about the consumer from the lens of different industries. And it keeps me on my toes. It keeps me um, you know, just constantly thinking about how something I learn in one place might be applied to another place. And I think it's also a great opportunity as a marketer to be able to sit on the other side of the board table and understand a little bit more about what board members think about to know that as a marketer, you're probably always going to have a variety of people weighing in on your advertising, not to take it personally, that boards just love having a point of view about those things. So maybe it's helped me develop a little bit more patience um, when I'm in my CMO role. Fantastic.
0: And Cammy, and when I look back at uh, our tenure working together when I was a member of your team at Yahoo, I, my dominant recollection of you was that you were always an inspiring leader, that the people that worked under you would run through a wall for you. And you sort of crescendoed a lot of that in 2017 when you wrote a book. And I'd love to hear about the process when you decided to write a book. I think it was uh, Fit Matters, How to Love Your Job. And I'd love to hear about that and what made you write the book and what were some of the key takeaways from the book?
1: So what made me write the book is, as I reflected on my time at Nintendo, I realized Nintendo is a great company and I had many happy experiences there and many successes, but ultimately it wasn't the right culture fit for me. and. It was the first time that that had happened in my career. And as I reflected on it, I realized that it's helpful for people to know that you can be a very talented business person and a company can be a really good company. And that doesn't mean that you're necessarily gonna make great music together. And I have this fundamental belief that we all have a rock star within us and that when we're in the job and the company that's just right we do our absolute best work and we do it fairly effortlessly and we do it with a lot of joy and so i just wanted to give people that bit of encouragement if they found themselves in a in a role that wasn't feeling like it was just right to let them know it wasn't them it's about the fit
0: and when you look back at nintendo company based in japan very distinct culture and not always kind to senior women. Was that part of your experience or were you isolated that, from all that? No,
1: that really was never part of my experience. I was always treated incredibly respectfully. Good. I think that the main difference was just um, the tolerance for risk taking. And one of the things that makes Nintendo so good as a game developer is they absolutely obsess over every single detail and despite having very conservative i mean very innovative products they're pretty conservative and they just make sure that everything is perfected whereas i think companies like yahoo and like pepsico where i grew up just had a higher tolerance for experimentation and risk and so that was really the cultural difference that was um, most significant to me okay
0: Great answer. Uh, Okay, so let's get to where we are now. And about three years ago, you joined this incredible rocket ship, Duolingo, as their CMO. How did you get there? And let's talk about Duolingo.
1: So I got there because um, actually a mutual friend of ours, Bennett Porter from Yahoo, knew that I was thinking about going back to full-time work um, I had taken a few years off to focus a little bit more on being a mom and write the book and doing boards, but I missed being part of a team. I missed building teams. So Bennett knew that, and she had talked to a recruiter um, who was looking for a CMO of Yahoo. So she reached out and said, I think you ought to have this conversation. And um, so I've always been up for pretty much any conversation with anybody, because if it's not right for you, maybe you can help them find somebody that um, would be a good fit. And as I started to find out more about the company and particularly as I talked to the leaders, the founder, Luis and Severin and some of the senior leaders of the company, I realized that it was a pretty special place and I have always jumped into job opportunities where I felt that I could both learn a lot as well as leverage some of my experiences to make an impact. And this was just one of those opportunities.
0: And the leaders of this company are very special people. Can you talk a little bit about them? And let's also, you know, I've you know, I've done my homework, of course, our crack great minds research team. So we know all about Duolingo and that, You can learn just about any language you want for free forever, which is a unique value proposition, but let's talk about the leaders and a little bit about the company.
1: Yeah. So um, the founder, Luis Spontan, is Guatemalan and has always had a passionate belief in the importance of education for unlocking economic opportunity. Came to the US to Duke, then was at Carnegie Mellon as a professor, started a company called Captcha, actually because someone from Yahoo came to Carnegie Mellon and laid out a challenge of some problems that Yahoo had not been able to solve um, in, around security. And so Luis created this company called CAPTCHA that actually solved those problems, was sold to Google, um, created a second company called ReCAPTCHA. So he's got a great track record as an entrepreneur um, and has an incredible mind. He actually was awarded with the MacArthur Genius Grant um, back uh, several years ago and just has this combination of intellect and mission orientation and absolute commitment to culture that I find to be a rare combination and something that is just at the heart of making this great company that I think we're making.
0: And there must be some thing that I'm missing, uh, but how does a company where you can learn something for free forever turn a profit?
1: Yeah. So um, for the first many years of Duolingo's life as a company, the focus was on building great language learning tools and making them accessible to everyone in the world who might be able to benefit from them. So it was all free. About three years ago, um, Luis realized that there was an opportunity to uh, develop a subscription service. And unlike a lot of, actually most all of our competitors, we don't put content behind a paywall. We make all of our content available for free. But if you subscribe to Duolingo, you are able to have an ad-free experience and you're able to just unlock some additional perks um, that aren't available in the free experience. So um, we put ads in and then we added Duolingo plus to take ads out as a way of, of, of uh, generating revenue.
0: Gotcha. And how centric is the U S to the business? How much is outside the U S and is that mix? Is that mix evolving?
1: It's a very global company, which is, something else that was very appealing to me and one of the things that I've done is to build out marketing uh, teams in China, in Mexico, in the UK, in Japan, uh, so that we can really better understand the needs of our learners there and better service them and just build awareness about Duolingo. We see that people who know Duolingo try the product And then when they try it, they have a great experience. So word of mouth is far in our way, our most important marketing channel. And so putting marketers in these geographic markets just gets the flywheel of that word of mouth marketing going.
0: Fantastic. And I would think, uh, I have not received any MacArthur or other Genius Awards, but I would think that this is a very good time for e-learning.
1: COVID was a fantastic time because students, parents, teachers all needed new tools. And teachers love assigning Duolingo because it's a very gamified experience. It's designed to keep you motivated. So teachers will even say to their students, okay, you can play Duolingo now, even though they know that uh, it's really enhancing their language learning. And then also for Pretty much all of us who were at home over the past year, who didn't have all of the typical social outlets that we had, but wanted to feel a little bit of productivity and and be able to prepare for when we were traveling again. For example, doing something like Duolingo was just a bright spot in people's lives. And so it's been, um, fortunately for us, COVID has been a period of great growth.
0: Well, I guess there have been clear beneficiaries of the past year beyond Amazon. They're not the only ones. Yeah, right. Right. And so, Cammy, just to wrap up, you've had this incredible Hall of Fame career as a marketer. I mean, you've worked for and led the marketing operations of some of the biggest companies, most important companies of the past 20 years. You're still relatively young. You've still got a lot ahead of you. Is there something in your mind that you think you'd like to get to that you haven't yet?
1: What really fuels me is watching young marketers develop. I take so much joy in thinking about some of those young marketers that we brought on at Yahoo who are now CMOs of various companies. And here at Duolingo, they really had had not had a marketing organization. They didn't need it because there was such great growth from word of mouth. And so what I'm looking forward to here is being able to, to build a strong marketing organization that really adds value to the company. And you know, through that, hopefully adds value to the world by making language learning accessible to far more people. So it's really just about, Growth through helping to grow talent—that's still the thing that, that fuels me.
0: And, and interesting how you go back to the reference that you had that conversation with Terry, where he talked about being kind. And I think that's you know hardwired into your DNA also, and that passion not only to work with brands that work with young people and lead them, but to also develop talent. It really tells a wonderful story that that comes full circle. No, oh, well, thank you for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, this was a joy. I'm so glad we got a chance to do this.
1: I am as well. And I look forward to catching up in New York again sometime soon. And to uh, having our mascot duo walk in the uh, character parade at Advertising Week.
0: We would love to have you in the fall. We will be back live um, in October. And we would love to have you on stage, Cami.